Real Fun DC. Conversations with culinary creators and people who eat them up. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. One of the beauties of Industry Night is that I really get to speak to people in a variety of industries doing incredible, incredible things, and it's always enlightening and fun. Don't forget, you can always download on iTunes and follow me on all social media at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S, NikkiNellis.com. So my first guest today is Anyang. You may know her as uh, the morning news anchor on NBC4 here in Washington, D.C., and she has... Um, really been a huge part of the food industry here in D.C., one of the few food anchors, I might add, who's really involved in the food community in a legit way, because she likes food. Love um, food. And also in studio with me is a good friend, Amanda McClements. She and I both started uh, in the food world together when I launched the list, areyouonit.com. She wasn't far behind in launching Metrocurian, but she is now a retail phenom here in D.C. with her Salt and Sundry Little Leaf and the Sunroom. So what I'd like to start with first, though, is on because every show, uh, I always bring in a special somebody. I mean, I have two special somebodies in studio <laughs> today, but uh, I always bring in sort of uh, somebody around town who's doing interesting things that people may know their names of. It, it's sort of a tie between the two of you today, but you win. So we'll start with you. So um, I know that you were born in South Korea and you yes. moved here when you were three. Mm -hmm. So we're, let's just get a little background on you. Sure. Where'd you grow up? Your family life, etc. I'm a total local girl. Right. I grew up in Prince George's County and Montgomery County, and mm -hmm. I went to the University of Maryland. I know most people who work in television news do a lot of hopping around the markets. Right. I didn't do that. I was lucky enough where I started from the bottom and really worked my way up. I'm not saying it was easy in any stretch of the imagination, but it just meant that I didn't have to move. But I was a production so assistant. I was a reporter trainee. Let's back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Journalism, what were you interested in? Were you interested specifically in TV? I was. I'll tell you, and this is a true story, when I was a little girl, I'm from the area. Mm -hmm. I saw Maureen Bunyan on the mm. local news, and she was the most beautiful, authoritative, regal and intelligent person I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I really understood local news or what she was saying, but I, I said, I wanted to do that. Right. Um, but you know, I came from a traditional Korean household. I needed to be a doctor or a lawyer or go to pharmacy school. It's a very common story when it comes from hardworking. I'm Jewish, right. so I understand. <laughs> hardworking immigrants who sacrificed everything to come to this country and to say, I'm not, I'm going to do something they didn't really understand. Sisters, brothers? One younger sister who lives in Leesburg, Virginia. She a doctor or a lawyer? Lee. No, neither of us did oh the God, traditional thing. Our poor parents, right. Um, <laughs> At least my sister is a lawyer and my brother is a doctor. Oh, good. Pressure's I'm off. The, I'm the only one that they're Pressure's like. Pressure's off. She's the artist. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then uh, they were worried when I told them I was going to study and pursue journalism. I had an mm -hmm. epiphany. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what it was. But even though when I was a little girl, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. But it when, wasn't really th something I thought I could actually pursue. But it was. But it's interesting to me that when you say journalism, you wanted to be on TV. I did. It wasn't like you wanted to go work no. in the newspaper. I wanted to be Maureen Bunyan. Okay. Well. Yeah. That's something to live up to. Yeah. She's amazing. She still is amazing. So tell me how you got started. So I was an intern at the local CBS station. Mm -hmm. And honestly, 
it was something I didn't think I could. You know when you, someone says, what's your dream job? And you say you want to play in the major leagues or you want to be an astronaut. And it's really this far off dream, but you don't actually think you, there are steps you can take to go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, some people do, obviously. There are right. amazing astronauts and major league baseball players. There are people who are president. Exactly. So you know. But at the time, I kind of put that dream aside and was just doing what I thought I was going to do, get good grades, mm-hmm. follow the rules. I was a typical firstborn um, child of immigrant family. I kind of put my head down and worked really hard, didn't make a whole lot of waves. Uh, but for some reason, my senior year of high school going into college, you know, I thought, okay, this is my chance. I'm going mm-hmm. to the University of Maryland. They have a great journalism program, and you have to take a grammar test to get in. And you would not believe the number of people who fail that grammar test. Oh, I, I have no doubt. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I would fail that grammar test. So I wanted to I take it, though. Grammar. And I passed, and I was accepted into the school. Okay. And I said, I'm going to go for it. So when I told my parents, they thought it was a phase or that I would snap out of it, that maybe I'd do pharmacy or maybe I'd do something, <laughs> engineering, something that I could get a job. But uh-huh. they did look at me like I was crazy. I bet. Now, of course, they couldn't be prouder. I mean, oh, my sure. mother watches every single morning. She doesn't want to miss a single cut-in. It's ridiculous. Does but she, that's one of the benefits of living here. She lives here, too. Does and my dad does, too. Does she call with critiques? Oh, yeah. She's the first one. I mean, she thinks I'm the best, obviously. Of the best. That goes without saying. But she'd be the first one to tell me there's a hair out of place, that I forgot to reapply lip gloss in between the cut-ins. <laughs> and she does it out of sheer love. You know, right. it's out of love. But, yes, I do get the, um, what happened in that one thing? You know, it just seemed like we did that put the wrong word in the prompt. I'm like, no, I just stumbled over that I mean, I mean people stumble right, exactly. all the time. So right. you go to CBS, you start yes. as an intern. I start as an intern, work my way up. But, you know, I don't think people understand that that's how a lot of people get into broadcast journalism. Right. You have to work your way up. They just don't put you on TV. It doesn't happen like that. No. You have to... And to your point earlier, most times people work their way up by going to a station in Cleveland and then going to a station right. in New Mexico and then going someplace else. Like five different iterations before they can get to And Washington. getting in the D.C. market is it's tough. Very, it's, it's one of the major markets. It's a competitive business. It yes. is. And because, especially because D.C. is the seat of national news. So when you are in D.C., you're covering news that affects everybody. Right. And that makes it special, too. So were you a reporter? Or were you I a was. Producer? So even before like, that. What did they give you? Right. Before that, when you're an intern... I always say you have to make the most of what you get. Internships mm-hmm. are not glamorous. And then I was a production assistant, and it really was going to buy dry ice for the weather center for the Halloween segment so it can look spooky. <laughs> you know, it is truly um, doing all the bottom of the barrel jobs mm-hmm. that you think that you are too qualified for because you want to get the experience. But it also means coming in on your days off to go shadow the reporter you admire because he is the best writer in the business. Right. It's working late so you can learn someone else's job. So when that job opens up, you're available to do it without the training. You have to be willing to put in the work. And I can't explain it. You can be the most talented person alive, but if you're not willing to bust your butt. You gotta hustle. You have to hustle. You have to work so hard. And, you know, the sad news about Kobe Bryant, I think that was his mantra. I think he was one of the most naturally gifted athletes we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And yet he will tell you, I will never stop grinding. I will never stop working my butt off to get better, not just on the court, but outside of the court as well. Well, and I think he lived that way, yes, too. I, I mean, think- every look, he made mistakes when you're in the public. Those mistakes everybody knows about. Yep. But he really educated himself and right. changed and did what changed, he had to do. To to know, exactly. And um, really had a hold of his own narrative, mm-hmm. I think. Um, 
Well, so you've done some amazing reporting yourself. I feel very fortunate in my the career. Olympics was inauguration. Yes. So let's hear about some of the highlights. Like, what were some of the places where you were like? I can't believe I'm doing this. I will say the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang mm-hmm. was truly one of the highlights of my career. Number one, I'd never covered the Olympics. It is the greatest sporting event on the world stage. Right. And because it brings people together, it brings unity and a special bond on the stage that shows, yes, it's sport, but it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And I was going to the country of my parents, right, homeland. But you've been back. I had, but it had been, I mean, but not since I was a child. Okay. It's not something, you know, I'm, I was... But your husband goes back? He goes back for work a lot. Okay, that's what I thought. I don't go back. You don't go back. No, no, no. Okay. So it had been... But you took the kids with you. I mean, I went for work. He right. took the kids. He took the kids. Right. Okay. I was working the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so when he went with the kids, I got to see them for one day. Okay. Right. It was <laughs> mostly work. Right. So the fact that I got to cover the most amazing sporting event on the world stage and see what the athletes do, the sacrifice they put in, mm-hmm. the stories behind the event. That's what's important. What they've had to give up, the injuries they've had to overcome, the mental demons they have to fight but through. But who's sourcing those stories? Like when you're able to report on those stories, how are you getting them? So I will tell you for the Olympics, I was my own producer. Okay. I was by myself with Lance Ng, mm-hmm. my photographer who helped me, of course, right. but I am my own assignment editor and my own producer when I'm out there. So you're coming up with your own story. Yes, I'm trying to. Number one, I mean, we do a lot. You have to do a lot of your homework. You know, that's one of the big things I'm sure, you know, you and Amanda could tell any young person, be prepared is my mantra. So before Mm -hmm. you even go to the Olympics, you have to make sure you know who the local athletes are. So you have an idea of who they are and make connections with their family, their friends, everyone you can, their coaches. Mm -hmm. Once you get get out there, if they're a bigger name person, then you have to make sure you contact their press people. Um, to try to do lay the groundwork so when you're there you're not scrambling then you have to do all the things that aren't glamorous so not just covering the events but you have to go to the press conferences to meet the people and so they get to know your face and you have to follow them along and make sure you engage them in social media you do all of that and then you find the story behind the story and that means a lot of listening mm-hmm. um, at the for example the women's bobsled team I went to the press conference and found out they all have higher education degrees master's degrees huh. they're all women who aren't 18 who are, in terms of athletes, a little bit more farther along in their careers. Mm -hmm. And so this really strong group of women who are super smart and who really are breaking the barriers of what it means to be a female athlete was, to me, such a great story. And that really resonated with me, and it did with our audience as well. So it's not just about being bobsled and... um, No, it's finding the angle. Right. right? What's the the different story? And that's the thing, because the Olympics... It's not just about for the people who love sports. It's for everyone. It's for families. It's about humanity and how it brings us together. Tell me more about some of, like, your day-to-day. You know, like, you get up every morning. Right. you got to be on the air. You're on at the crack of dawn. Painful. Yes. It sounds painful. It is painful. And yet you're still out and about. It's so impressive. Yeah. Um, but the daily grind of yeah. the stories that you have to share and tell, how does that all come together? And... and some of it's got to be hard. It's very difficult. I get up in the middle of the night when everyone should be fast asleep. I'm on the air by 4 a.m. Oh 4 a.m. Uh, I would be so... A- I'm an angry person at 4 a.m. <laughs> I don't believe I can you. go to bed at 4 a.m. Right. And wake, up people... at, and wake up at 8 and be fine. I go yeah. very well without sleep. But I don't like 
4 a.m. on the Riverside. Well, I will tell you, people always ask me, oh, you're used to it. I'm like, no, you're never used to it because it's not natural for your body to get up in the middle of the night. So right. even though I've been doing it for 10 years, it, you don't get used to it ever. Mm -hmm. It really hurts every single time. And what about the stories you're covering on a day-to-day so -day basis? I will say I have a wonderful morning team. Mm -hmm. It's not just me. I am one part of a big team. And there are producers and executive producers and content producers who are working to put this show together. And I'm the face of it with Aaron Gilchrist, but right. there are people who are working behind the scenes making sure that the stories are interesting, that they somehow resonate with us. And we always try to go over them to make sure it has our voice on it. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes breaking news, you don't know what's going to happen until the day of. And that's the kind of the beauty of local news is well, you do don't you know ever what you're going to cover. Like a story, like I'm sure you've been on air lots of times. I mean, you weren't on air for 9-11, but like, are you ever on air where there's like a crisis and they're Absolutely. like, change your plans. Let's go. A hundred percent all the time. And I think that's where you make your, I mean, that's where you prove your worth. Is, right. You make you, your know, you can read the teleprompter, but when you have breaking news and there's no prompter, there's no script and you just have producer feeding information. Right. In your is ear, there somebody in your ear? Uh, and you're also trying to gather news on your own, mm -hmm. on your phone, you know, talking to the assignment desk. Those breaking news situations is when you show that, okay, you this is where you have value in what you do as a journalist, making sure that, yes, you want to be first, but you better be right, is it, which is more important. Is it hard with local news? I mean, did you see yourself going national? Did you, do you want to stay here? I'm not trying to put your job in jeopardy, but like, <laughs> you know, you're so good at what you do and you're so, you're so beloved sweet. here, but are there bigger goals? Like at what point do you say, no, this is great. I'm very happy here. Or yeah, I want to be on the today show or I want to go try this or I want to go try that okay. for me. And then this is not just an excuse. It's about your lifestyle mm -hmm. and what you want to get out of your life. I think local news allows you to have a connection to your community. It allows you to be a part of something that is smaller on a scale where you know the people that are a part of your stories and mm -hmm. you care about them because they're your neighbors and they're the people that you share your life experience with. And so I think that's what's different about local news. And I have three children. Right. I'm from this area and I not, and I, again, it's not to say one is better than the other. It's no, just my choice. It's my choice that I want to be very involved in my kids' lives. Mm -hmm. I don't want to miss one thing. Okay. I had to miss my daughter's play while I was in Pyeongchang, and it nearly crushed me. I bet. And it was like one time right. in all her school years of elementary school that I had that's to miss okay. this That's play. what therapists are for. Right. Good right. She'll complain about it. me right. when she's in therapy. Right, absolutely. It won't be the only thing she complains right. about, exactly. trust me. Oh, I know. All of the kids will have to be in therapy <laughs> to recover from my parenting. Well, I'm, I want to get to Amanda, but I want to yes. come back to you in a little bit because yes. I'd like to dig a little deeper about... Um, being young and Asian and a woman yep. in journalism, absolutely. You know, 20 years ago, sure. and then how it's evolved today. Um, being a person of color, being on yeah, on sure. TV, and the priorities of it, how the stations are yeah. handling it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How much time do we have? I know. I know. It's a <laughs> it's deep a topic. Big issue. I know. But I'd like to get into it just a little bit sure, sure. and just talk about what it's like being a woman in the industry, okay. um, because you know, I think Amanda's in a interesting industry as well, where Again, the playing fields are not level all the time, no matter how successful you are and how hard you work. 
and whatever the numbers are. So uh, my second guest, as I mentioned earlier, is Amanda McClements, a good friend. We both started, we have a fan in studio. Um, she, she brings her fans with her everywhere. Um, she has, uh, so she and I started out in the food industry together. She had a fabulous blog called Metricurian. And uh, one day called me up, it was after Thanksgiving, and said to me on the phone, I think I'm gonna open up a retail shop. And I was like, Okay, that sounds great. And she was like, no, I'm serious. And I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, what does that sound like? What does it look like? And she already really had a plan in place. She didn't know where, but she knew what she wanted. And I think that speaks volumes to the kind of person that she is and also the kind of businesswoman that she is. So let's go back to the kernel of salt and sundry. Where did that come from? Oh, goodness, the kernel. Where, where, where was that kernel popped into a little piece of popcorn? Um, so, like you said, I was a food writer. Um, mm -hmm. I had uh, gone to journalism school, was intending to be in uh, media as, mm -hmm. as my career. Um, I worked at a couple newspapers, magazines, and um, had really started to gravitate towards writing about what was great in D.C., which mm -hmm. that's how we met. And we right. bonded over, um, you know, what was a blossoming restaurant scene at the time. And more eyes, I think, were turning towards D.C. as a, a place of note when it came to, to the restaurant scene and, and the city was growing. And at one point, it occurred to me um, that, you know, while the restaurant scene had blossomed, the, there wasn't... Uh, the same kind of uh, movement happening on the retail side. Mm -hmm. I now understand a lot more about why, <laughs> why? that is. <laughs> um, why? But, why is that? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people ask, why isn't there a lot of retail in mm -hmm. D.C.? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody thinks it's so easy. Right. And I, I, and I think, you know, there, there are lots of barriers to entry. And, and, you know, even the way, you know, something as nuanced as the way the city is laid out. There are there are so many factors um, that have put us where we are and, mm -hmm. and, and made it somewhat challenging and also fertile ground for great ideas. So um, so that doesn't really answer your question. But no, not was, at all, uh... but it was very interesting <laughs> nonetheless. So, but I know, so I think what's interesting about Salt and Sundry is that you, it sort of came about at a time as the city was changing in that not everybody was just going to open 14th Street over towards Georgetown DuPont Circle mm -hmm. and Adams Morgan. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't just Northwest-centric. All of a sudden, there was a lot of money percolating mm -hmm. in areas that people who lived in Northwest, or maybe Capitol Hill, but were not traveling to. So the Edens Group was putting together Union Market, mm -hmm. a massive venture in an area that people did not go to mm -hmm. unless you went to Gallaudet or you're buying food from the warehouses. Right. Um, so it was sort of right place, right time for you to sort of incubate there, don't you think? Absolutely. So I had lived in the Logan Circle neighborhood for uh, most of the time I'd been in D.C. I've been here since about 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a there's a nice stretch on 14th, even back then in, you know, 2005, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 2010 of uh, small independent retailers. And there are very few other places in the city where that exists. And so when the idea hatched for Salt and Sundry, it, you know, in my mind, it was a place where I wanted to shop that brought together a lot of the, you know, eclectic style, um, you know, hospitality, uh, you know, great 
quality products that you could buy and have for a lifetime. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try it on 14th Street. I looked at some real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like you mentioned, Union Market was, uh, meanwhile, being planned. And as food writers, we were all excited for sure. the prospect of this this you know, food hall that was going to bring together a lot of the best makers and bartenders and restaurant folks in the, in the city, a place where you could buy fish and dairy and cheese. And so we were all excited in the community. Well, not just that. They were touching base with a lot of people we knew, right? Absolutely. They were looking to Gina Cervani, who was the drink maker at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Carolyn Stromberg. Uh, Stromberg, you know, who was big into cheese. Like, yeah. there were names we knew. They were people we had relationships with. So it made it even better. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, honestly, I was thinking it was a bit of a cop out on my part because I was really afraid to start a business. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you're so brave. And I had to overcome a lot of, uh, doubt and fear. And, you know, one of the biggest things is you're, you're facing this 10 to 20 year, uh, commercial real estate lease when you're opening a restaurant or a shop. And it's like, I don't know what I'm doing next week, much less in 20 (laughs) years. Um, so, you know, when I, uh, connected with, uh, Eden's and union market, I was thinking maybe they'll give me a little table in the corner and I can, I can have a little kiosk. buy some things and see if I even have a, a knack for this or a sense for this. And then, you know, they came back to me and said, we've got, you know, this anchor space. We'd really love a local person in there. And then 2012, I opened. I had no idea what I was doing. And like you mentioned, I was uh, sandwiched in between uh, Gina Tersavani with Buffalo mm-hmm. and Bergen and Carolyn Stromberg with Righteous <laughs> Cheese. So, you know, the three of us were these women who we had been in the industry and, and you know, they had been in the restaurant industry a long time, but these but were their nobody, first right, ventures. Nobody owned their own. Yeah. Right. So we were all first time business owners, which created such a, a fun, um, supportive environment, which, you know, when you're scared. Well, it's kind of like having a being in a baby group, yeah, right, or like, like your freshman you know, year dorm, right, you know? exactly. Like everybody's in the same place. Yeah. Every, I mean, you're all selling different things, yeah. But at the end of the day, you're all trying to be successful, and it's great to have other people in the exact same position as you. Absolutely. Um, so, but when you were putting together Salt and Sundry, the original Salt and Sundry, what would you say, like your aesthetic was? I mean, did you, you know, you have a specific style, um, but as you were taking your personal style, like how you decorated your house and how you, you dress um, and your overall aura, how were you taking that and being like, I can now put this in a store? Do you know what I mean? How were you serving it up? How did, did you like know back then? Like, I have to go to shows. I have to do this. Like, who told you what to do? Uh, Google. No, <laughs> no, it was, uh, you know, I had, I had had a ton of coffee meetings, cocktail meetings. I was trying to pick the brains of everybody who could, uh, you know, give me advice on the industry. Um, and you know, there aren't, there aren't a ton of people who know that industry super well, um, here that, that were in my network already. Right. Um, I certainly looked to a lot of the bar and restaurant owner friends that I had on, you know, just simple things like how do you recruit and maintain a good team? Mm. Um, but I mean, what you what you're saying about how do you channel, you know, your look or your aesthetic and, and put it out there. I mean, that's being a writer before it is so scary to put yourself out there mm-hmm. and you think, you know, I could open the doors, people walk in, they browse around, turn on their heel and say, oh, that's cute. Right. Pick it up. Yeah. I mean, I, I had no idea until I opened whether or not my taste would resonate with anybody but me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really scary. And then once you did open and it did resonate, I mean, 
Union Market opened to tremendous fanfare. Mm -hmm. um, and you bought, you had the store obviously got a tremendous amount of press, and so did you. I mean, rightfully so. Um, what was it about the stuff you were buying? Were you like, oh, I think everybody's going to love this. And then you were like, okay, nobody bought that. How did you like, <laughs> you know, how did you figure that part out? You know, it's, I've always felt really strongly that um, it, it, if I want to own it, it goes in the shop. And mm -hmm. I, like I said, in the beginning, I had no idea if that was going to work. Right. Um, you know, it took a couple years to get some confidence that, okay, I, I can choose things that people will want. Mm -hmm. I am not a, a retailer who... Um, flies with trends and says, okay, well, this, this is selling really well other places. I don't really like it that much. It's not really my style, but I know it's going to be a great seller. Unless I want it, it's not going to go into the shop. Well, I think that's really shop. smart. I mean, I don't think you hear that in a lot of restaurants. A lot of times a restaurant will keep a dish on the menu, whether it's out of season or whatever, because it sells. Yeah. And I mean, the margins are razor thin. Not that you're not dealing yeah. with that, but you're lucky that you're able to do that. Right. But I think um, that brings me to sort of the next like progression of you is that you also met with you. You don't only carry locals. Obviously, you carry from places all around the world, but you really help promote people who are in the sort of craft artisan world here in D.C., which has also exploded. Mm -hmm. So how does that happen? Do they come out to you? Are you always looking? How did these relationships start? Because you wind up giving a lot of these people a platform. That's my favorite part of my job, other than the, the team that I've built and work with. Mm -hmm. um, that would be, I think, my favorite part of the job. Um, you know, so we are looking constantly. Um, we approach people. We go to shows. We, you know, I travel internationally. I'm constantly taking inspiration from those trips. And then people also come to us now. So somebody you know, out in California might say, oh, a, a good friend of mine recommended I get in touch with you. I'd love to have my jewelry or my soap or whatever it may be in your shop. Mm -hmm. So it's a really fun you know, constant um, scouting and sourcing process. That's the most fun part of owning right. a business you're like shopping. this. Because you shop all the time. <laughs> right. All the rest of it is, uh, is, is much more challenging, but the shopping piece is easy. Um, but, you know, there was a, a woman who is still a friend and we still stock her goods, uh, Ava, who has a company called Printed Wild here in D.C. Mm -hmm. And I met her at uh, Crafty Bastards, which was a big craft fair that used to be in the parking lot at Union Market. Right. And this is year one, and I'm, you know, walking around the stalls and trying to find, um, you know, products that resonated with me or that I might be interested in bringing in. Mm -hmm. And she was brand new, and I remember saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I love your... Um, you know, she does these beautiful botanical-inspired illustrations and then was block printing them on linen. Um, she does beautiful uh, prints. And, you know, I said, could you, could you make me, you know, I think it was something like 75 linen kitchen towels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we laugh now because I, I didn't know her well. She didn't know me well. And I think she freaked out and was like, was like how am I going to do that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have <laughs> no idea how I'm going to make, you know, 75 um, towels for this, for this shop. Um, but those kind of relationships are, are what are so rewarding is to watch small makers be able to grow their business right? Um, because we're bringing the goods to you. And, you know, I, I remember we got this letter um, from a woman who uh, runs a fantastic ceramic studio um, out in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, uh, because of your holiday order, we were able to buy a second kiln and we, now we can double our production. And, you know, so woman-owned business, she... It's pretty much only employing women, and um, it felt so good to I know bet. that you know as we were growing, the the folks whose goods we're stocking are growing, and mm -hmm. you know the more people we can reach, the more these small businesses can grow with us. So I feel like we're really stuck on Salt and Andre. Um, 
which there's a lot to discuss. Uh, but I don't want to miss Little Leaf. I mean, oh, yeah. all of a sudden, I have like 18 plants in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Green Thumb over here. Help um, me, I don't have a green thumb. <laughs> no, I don't. That's my point. But uh, Amanda is one of the people who's totally changed the conversation, especially in this city, but also nationally, caught onto the trend about plants and having plants in your house and, I mean, succulents and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, also the sunroom, obviously. So Amanda has expanded in lots of ways. I just want to get back to where we left off, and then we can grow. So staffing, right? So you start, you, listen, you started with an amazing team. Half of them worked for me. But uh, <laughs> you did start with an amazing team, and, you know, you had Sally DiNapoli working for you. And um, you were really able to sort of channel to the people who were working for you your passions. And now that you're growing, how does that how are you still able to excite people in the same way? You know, it's, it's a great question because it is it's a challenge. I'm full of great questions. <laughs> As your friend, you should know Absolutely. That. This, right. is, this, is, this is something I know about you. Um, you know, I, I was a journalist before, and so storytelling was, was what I was trained on. And mm -hmm. I didn't expect there to be this um, overlap between what I was doing before, which was mm -hmm. telling stories and, you know, maybe featuring... Um, you know, a chef and, right. um, and what I, well, and you also wrote for the travel section for the Washington post yeah. and food and wine. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you were just, your blog was fabulous. Don't get me wrong, but like you, you were a serious food writer. Right. And I, I did not expect to find such a similarity in being a shopkeeper. And I remember one day I was standing on the floor in the union market shop explaining, um, how much I loved the nut butter that you were talking about earlier, which is called Big Spoon from it's really delicious. my hometown in Durham, North Carolina. And, you know, I'm, I'm going on and on about their story and how they got started. And I realized this is exactly what I used to do for print mm -hmm. publications. I'm just doing it in person um, to a customer in the right. shop, which was even more rewarding because you're, you're able to have a conversation. You know, when you, when you write, you, you have readers and maybe they leave comments, maybe they leave nasty comments. Maybe they're in Russian. Right, as the internet does. So yes, that, that is a big piece. Um, and we're constantly, uh, you know, training our team. Um, we do something called the Sundry Spotlight, Spotlight each week and we do the leafy um, version for Little Leaf where we're, we're constantly training um, the team on the stories behind the products. So... Which came first? I know you Salt and Sundry Union Market, but then did you open a little Salt and Sundry on 14th Street and then you turned it into Little Leaf? Like, where did Little Leaf come from? Right. So 2012 was Union Market's launch. Right. About 18 months later, someone came to me with an opportunity on 14th Street and said, come, you know, you ready to... the to... space you were originally looking at, Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, I said, oh my gosh, no, I'm, I'm like barely, you know, gotten my head above water. Um, and then I talked with my team about it and we were like, well, okay, maybe, I don't know. That was sort of where we originally envisioned the shops where mm -hmm. I, it's my neighborhood. I, I had lived there for over a decade and, um, we opened the second salt and sundry in 2014 on S street in the space that is now little leaf. So it's, it's a tiny space. It's barely, you know, 700 square feet or so. So we crammed all of our salt and all of our sundries <laughs> into this little space and it was um, packed and it was great and we were we were having a blast um, we knew we needed a little more space uh, meanwhile we were hearing from our customers that uh, 
every time we put out a plant or a bouquet of flowers or you know a succulent arrangement on the register, somebody tried to buy it. Right. <laughs> and there were a couple times when um, you know I had just gone to Home Depot and planted something and stuck it in the corner to add greenery to the shop. And I remember this woman. She said, "Well, I don't want to go to Home Depot. I want that." <laughs> and you know, you thought you were being nice. You were like, "No, no, no, just go to Home Depot." Yeah, I thought I was giving her like, the tip. Right. And um, and and you know, to be honest, most plants are still purchased in big box stores, mm-hmm. but plenty of people don't want to trek out to a big box store, don't have a car, you mm-hmm. know, especially in an urban area. And people were looking for a more boutique experience where they could walk in. It would look like a, you know, a stylish shop. They would be treated, um, you know, with the same customer service that you could expect in a stylish shop. And that was where Little Leaf really came from was we, we saw this need. We saw people wanting to buy what we did have at Salt and Sundry. Well, but Little Leaf also has a tremendous amount of education. I mean, the people who work at Little Leaf can tell you, like, everything about how to take care of for the plant, what you should be doing. Yes. And I mean, they don't shame you, but they, <laughs> no, they are, they you could. Know, my, my little leaf team is spectacular. They, the type of people who want to work there are, are plant lovers. They're obsessed with plants. So mm-hmm. it, you know, the training almost, you know, happens on its own. They, they are so passionate and they are so um, excited to share and to encourage people. So, you know, they're, which is they're why I have 18 plants now in my house. <laughs> I mean, Listen, for real. And they also, help you understand how it will look in your home that you're not necessarily getting from Home Depot because I know nothing about where to put a plant or lighting or home design to say where to put this gorgeous plant to make it look right. Totally and completely with you. I totally I could gush about Salt and Sundry all day. (laughs) FYI, if you need me, I'm here. (laughs) And I'm going to let you take it away. I don't have anything else to say. I know. A 10-minute advertisement for Salt and Sundry by I mean, I'm there Um, for you. Um... Okay, so we open up Little Leaf. We open up a flagship store on 14th Street. Right. Um, right. So we had we had this opportunity to take a larger space on 14th, and it uh-huh. was perfect timing because we had this concept uh, percolating. That was that was this plant shop with you know, gifts and still some, you know, we have a lot of handmade pottery, Mm -hmm. um, greeting cards, uh, you know, plant accessories. Um, and we, we did that in, uh, one week in December of 2016. I think I was there for it. I remember. I mean, I wasn't physically there, but I was there emotionally. (laughs) We closed as salt and sundry at six o'clock on a Sunday night, the first week of December, Mm -hmm. we moved overnight to To the the larger 14th street space. Uh Uh-huh. Opened the next morning by about noon once we had gotten our business permits in line. Mm. And I remember something about a mop. <laughs> yes, we learned we learned a lot of lessons about the uh, bureaucracy of um, of the government and uh, and opened Little Leaf in the same space, renovated it a week later, which I would not recommend anyone ever open two retail shops in, in December. Week. It's like getting two puppies. Um, yeah, I felt <laughs> like we were on a bad reality show, but it was great. Our team um, rallied through. They yeah, did it. Yeah. So, okay, you've got all these stores happening. Sometimes Little Leaf does a pop-up mm-hmm. at um, Union Market. You did a pop-up also at the Botanical Gardens at over the, the summer, yeah, it was which was really, really cool. Um, but now you have the sunroom. What was the vision there? What were we thinking? So, plain, plainly put, we needed more space for our inventory. Um, mm-hmm. So we started looking for warehouses. Where was it going before? It was going was it in uh, your apartment, we were like in, in your we house. In, well, yeah, day one, it was uh, in my in my house, um, my life in cardboard boxes. Um, then we were on the third floor of Union Market. There's actually a space up there um, where uh, we were starting to grow out of, and especially with the addition of Little Leaf. You know, mm-hmm. we we have an 18 wheeler comes up a from plant. Florida. 
bringing all the tropical plants, and that takes up a lot of room. So uh-huh. we found this awesome space over in Eckington. Um, we have some great neighbors, Stable Arts. It was a building that was, was being uh, renovated, and we realized that we had this opportunity with so much space to create an event venue in addition to being our working creative headquarters and uh, warehouse for our inventory. So it's a, a dual-purpose, multi-purpose space. So for people who haven't had the luxury of being there, how did you make that happen? Like, how do you make it a workspace during the day and an event space at night or on the weekends? With a lot a of, bit of magic. diligent muscle. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. I, just, I just twitch my nose and everything falls into place now. Um, no, my team, um, the Sunroom team is incredible. And we've, it's been a lot of growing pains in the past uh, year and a half. We took over that space in August of 2018. Mm-hmm. And we thought, sure, you know, we'll get you know, all hands on deck. Everybody move all the stuff into the back and we'll have a wedding there on a Saturday. And that's not exactly how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've gotten into a rhythm. We've learned a lot of lessons. So now it's a, a effectively switching back and forth between this functioning warehouse where there's, you know, big pallet deliveries coming in of goods. And mm-hmm. then we, we clean it up and polish Make it. it ready. And yeah. And then and it's ready for we had a wedding last Saturday for 150 people. So that's amazing. Yeah. It is really amazing. And then given your experience and I kind of want to open it up to, um, on as well right now, you know, given your experience, like when we talk about retail, right? I mean, listen, you're in all the magazines and you look really pretty and your house looks great. But I think people look at everything you're doing and think, I mean, how hard can it be? Do you know what I mean? Like it looks glamorous, no different than your job, right? You're on air. You look very pretty. Yeah, I did not wake up like this. <laughs> right. But like, you know, you're telling important stories, but I don't know if people understand what it takes not only to get there for both of you, but what it takes to do it. Do you know what I mean? So how would you explain that to people? I think one of the uh, most challenging things about being a small business owner is that even, even when you do have things humming along and you've got a great, strong support team like I do, um, you constantly carry around the pressure of uh, success or failure. And you know, I think a normal day in an entrepreneur's mind is, oh my gosh, this is great. This is working. I think we're having these successes. And then like eight hours later, you're like, I will fail and I will go bankrupt and everything will be (laughs) um, in ruins. And it's just this emotional roller coaster that you have to learn to, um, to carry around with you, which I've made some strides, but still there. (laughs) And, but for you on your own as a business woman, um, are people approaching you or people not approaching you? Real estate, spaces, retail. I mean, you got very lucky. Lucky's the wrong word. Not everybody got, has the opportunity to deal with somebody on 14th Street who owns the building, right? Mm-hmm. With like dollar signs in their eyes, right? I mean, everybody's thinking, and this goes for restaurants too. It's the only reason why I can talk about it is that everybody's looking for the whales, right? Who can come in? Who can pay the most per square foot and who can make the most money? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you as a small business owner deal with that? I mean, it's part of the reason why retail is so tough in this city. So how do you deal with it? Absolutely. I think, I mean, to your point, um, until landlords and building owners start to prioritize Stop being um, so greedy. Yeah, really. I mean, Stop being greedy. You know, they're, they're making money in a lot of other ways and, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes they are building, 
uh, you know, a place um, with, they want the cool, hip, you know, cachet of, of cool, independent retailers. Um, and, but oftentimes they're going to overlook you and they're going to take the bank that will pay double per square foot. And that's, right. that's why you're seeing a lot of the corridors in D.C., there's so many banks um, evolve the way they're evolving. And, and I, I, I do think we have an opportunity and that there is some energy shifting around that and that there are smart, savvy landlords and building owners who are starting to say, you know what, I'll go ahead and take a risk on the small local retailer who wants to start up. Maybe they're not going to pay me the bank mm-hmm. price per square foot. But I know that the building will appreciate it. The neighborhood it's will appreciate amenity. it. It's an amenity. It, it's, right. it's, it's creating community. Right, which is a necessity, especially as more and more real estate develops in the city, right? Like as more and more neighborhoods grow and we have more and more places to live within the city confines, like Eckington is a great example. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's so much construction going on over there. 15 years ago, I never even heard of the area, Eckington. It wasn't an area that people were talking about. They weren't putting money into it. and I, you know, now there's a lot going on over there or where Union Market is or Navy Yard or Bloomingdale. I mean, all these areas are getting hugely invested. And I mean, obviously, there's another story about displacement and all that stuff. But that is another show as well. Um, but the, the question is, is how do we work with these? How do you work with the real estate people, a lot of whom are men, um, you know, in saying, no, this is what. I can pay mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people who want to get into retail aren't scared by the numbers because they don't know the realities. Right. There's, you know, to make a business successful, there are a lot of different levers. But when people say, you know, what, what could a local government do to support small business? Mm-hmm. It's the rent. I mean, that's, that is, right. that's that right. is the big piece that is really out of control. And, you know, I, I hear people float the concept of a commercial, um, you know, a rent cap for, for commercial spaces. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, profit drives a lot of, of real does. estate. Um, but that, that's, that's it. I mean, unless there are places that are accessible, um, you, you won't have a lot of small independent retail. Um, I think we're sort of an exception um, to what's happening in D.C. And I'm, I'm hoping for and rooting for, you know, every time um, a, a small retailer opens, you know, I'm hoping they, they've gotten the right lease and negotiated, mm-hmm. you know, in the right way to protect themselves because it's, it, that is the piece that is, is what's making it so difficult and so inaccessible for so many people. Well, and when you're covering the D.C. scene, because you do, I mean, you don't just do hard hard news. You get to cover some of the lighter stuff. Are these some of the stories that you get to share and tell? I really do try to shine a light on local businesses. Mm -hmm. I think even for something as simple as highlighting Small Business Saturday and talking about women-owned businesses, there are so many great ones, including Salt and Sundry. (laughs) And I don't think people understand what you said, how hard it is to make it. Uh, I think it looks glamorous and for any business. And I think both of you know, the restaurant business especially, people think chefs are rolling in money and that everything is a party and that they don't realize the long hours and the sacrifices to their families and personal lives. And I think that's something that as small business owner like Amanda, yourself Mm -hmm. um, and me, we understand what it's like to have to put in so many hours behind the scenes before you can feel like you've made it. 
Well, I mean, I don't want to slam on social media, but it's sort of like the good news, bad news of social media, sure. right? I mean, it's so easy to look at retailers or chefs or news anchors on social media and think, I mean, you know, you saw Maureen Bunyan and you were like, I want to do that. Yes. But you were willing to put in the work for it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because you saw her working. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know if people today understand that I'm sure there's lots of people who do, but I feel like there's a whole, a whole group of people who just think, yeah, I mean, I want to be an anchor, right? And I, I want to do what Un does, but like, <laughs> I'm not bringing in the ice, right? Exactly. <laughs> or there are no good hours in television news, right? You know, I've been working in this business for a very long time, and in the beginning, you work 12 hours a day plus. You maybe have one day off. You have to work weekends. You can't put your social life as a priority if you want to try to get ahead. And then you have to work extra on top of that to do what you want to do. Because everybody want wants your job. Stories. But also, sure. everybody's going for your but job. But if I want to do a story, like you said, a human interest story, right. I have to do it after I'm done with the regular news story sure. that I can do it on top of, like, hey, I want to bring shed light to a fantastic story about a particular business or a restaurant or a great community event that's going on that mm -hmm. shed lights to something that's happening in our neighborhood that will have a connection to our do viewers. You, as, at this stage in your career, if you want to do a story on something, do you have to pitch it? I still have to pitch it. Okay. Um, it still has to have relevance. It, typically, I think I, I mean, definitely not like they're, have... Not like they be like, I wants to do it. We'll just do whatever she wants. But I mean, right. do you know what I mean? Like, but I definitely, I will have to say, definitely, I'm going to full on own it. I have mm -hmm. earned my right to say, I want to do this story. And sure. if I feel very strongly about it, the people who can make it happen are listening more carefully than... I did when I first Well, you have out. a tremendous platform. And I'm sort of curious, and I want to bring this to kind of to both of you, like, as women in your perspective industries, how, how has that affected you? And how has it changed, especially like in the last 10 years, right? So let's forget when you were young, because I can't even imagine what that was like for you in the broadcast industry. Yeah, we can share some stories. I bet. I bet people were not kind. No. Um, and bossy. Yeah. Um, but in the last 10 years, given your rise, how has that changed? In terms of being a woman? Yeah. Being I, a woman, being you, just your story. I think for me, I, you have to, I think you really have to know your worth mm -hmm. and you have to understand that I know what I'm talking about. I, I know that I know what I'm talking about and that gives me power. And that gives me an understanding. I'm from this area. I've worked very hard. I know these communities. I put in the work. So when I talk about a story that I want to do, it comes with the full knowledge that I've done my research. I've come prepared. And there's something that I'm going to add value to by, my, by me being the one who tells that story. Sure. And so I feel like definitely in the last 10 years, I have felt more empowered to use my voice to shed light on stories that I want to do, whether they're about uh, people who are working hard in the community, whether it's about the Asian American community. Mm -hmm. You know, we put on a special every May celebrating Asian American Pacific Heritage Month, and it's something we wouldn't have done 10 years ago. And the great thing, what makes me so happy, is we have so many stories to tell sure. about people who are doing good in this area. Um, whether it's about kimchi juice right. and her beautiful art, whether it's about taste strain from Momofuku. Mm -hmm. There's so many arts, business, um, uh, leadership 
politics, you name it. I, I judge. But I think you being judge on, from Fairfax right, County. but like being on the forefront of it and saying that this is these are stories that need to be told. Because of your platform, you get to be able to do that. Right, and that's something I've worked for. Right, I've earned, no, no, right, right. 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 It's yeah, ten years ago. People you didn't snap your finger. Right, exactly. And I think that's what it is. You have to put in that the dirty work that people don't see from behind the scenes is right. all the ugly hours and the sacrificing of your personal time and personal life. Have you had um, interviews? Not let's take um, let's take um, office politics off the table. Sure. Um, have you had interviews where the interviewee was unkind or rude, not because you were being a newswoman, because you were asking pertinent questions, but because you were a woman? Sure. I, I remember clearly I was a field reporter at that point, mm -hmm. and I was covering a crime scene. And a police officer, I was asking questions to a different police officer and people in the neighborhood to find out what really happened. I can't, I couldn't even tell you what the crime that was committed. Right. And police, and the police officer said, girl, he referred to me as girl. Oh my God. And I looked right at him and I said, officer, do not address me that way. And he was taken aback. I don't think he expected me to respond. Mm -hmm. And I, and he apologized. Good. But, and I'm glad I spoke up because it's hard. I will fully say when I started on this business as a very young Asian American woman, I did not necessarily feel that I could use my voice in that way mm -hmm. to stand up to people who diminished me or tried to make me feel less than I was or felt that I shouldn't be where I was because I was a young woman. And you have to learn that for yourself. And building that confidence comes, I think, with the work that you put in because you know, like Amanda knows her product. Right. That you gives her confidence. Best. She knows that when she curates her store, like she said, to put the things that she loves in front of her people, that people are going to love it. Mm -hmm. And so that comes with time. It comes with a lot of heartache and pain and you learn from your mistakes and you learn from the people who, who are hard on you in a way. So that officer, I will remember that story because that no one, no officer will address me in that way again because I won't allow it. Well, and I think that's a, a terrific point. I, I, I think standing up for yourself is important. You know, it's important. It's hard, and, I think it's harder to do than people realize. Sometimes in that moment, you feel shocked and upset. I think it's really hard when you're getting patronized mm -hmm. to realize what's happening sometimes. And also not to blow up, you know, to be calm and say... To be calm and, you know, to be politic, so to speak, but to also, like, setting boundaries, I think, is really tough. Do you know what I mean? And letting people, I mean, given the different business entities I'm in, where I am right now, I mean, five years ago, I was doing something, and I was sitting at a table full of men, and I knew what I was saying was right. I knew I was 100% right. Like, not even, like, 99.9. .9. Like, I was 100% right. Yes. And they were, like, patting me on the head, like, Nikki, I mean, you just, you don't understand how this works. And I was like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I do. I'm right. pretty sure I totally get how this works. But, you know, I, I doubted myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you doubt yourself when people tell you you don't know what you're talking about. And I think having that confidence in yourself and the right self-esteem is really a priority to not second guess. And sometimes you don't have to second guess. If you're wrong, you're wrong. There's nothing wrong with that either, right? right? And, you've, and to learn that you can build it, even if you don't feel confident in the beginning, that you, will, that you will find your voice and you can do it. Exactly. And that we empower each other. Yes. Totally. So with you, Amanda, mm -hmm. and just um, talking about your growth, how, how is the playing field for you now? 
are people pushier? Do they want more from you? Are they like, open a store here, open a store there? Like, how do you hold your Next ground? to my house. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to shop there every day. Um, we're, so we're opening an outpost and Un's house. Right. Um, breaking pop news. Up, hey, pop up oh on Saturdays. Dreams do come true. But you have to come between 2.30 in the morning and 4 a.m. <laughs> right, exactly, That's right. when the pop-up right, is happening. Right. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, there's a there's so many uh, common threads that I heard in what in what Un was saying, and 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 with your question of, we get approached a lot. We, uh, you know, real estate folks are often looking um, to build out, you know, a cool lineup of of retailers. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, uh, you know, again, like Un said, it's it's about knowing your worth, and it's taken. Um, this is my eighth year in small business god I, I can't I know, believe I know. it jeez it was like the other day that i called you um but you know i think that it takes it takes a while and there's this added layer of self-consciousness when you are a young woman entering into a business that you don't know well and learning to say i don't know what that means and not feeling like that is a That's reflection a of your intelligence or um, you know, there's, there's so many times, especially in the real estate world, you know, that's, it's an, it can be an aggressive place mm -hmm. and I, I can't stand the, the whole, um, it's not business, it's personal. It's like, you know what? You know, I remember hearing that the first couple of times when I was, wait, 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 it's not personal just it's business when people are or the reverse. It's not, sorry, it's not personal. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Thank good. You. I was my, like, wait, my, my copy that's a editor, new one. <laughs> my copy editor in studio. Sorry um, to correct you. I started you. as a copy editor, so thank you. Um, back in the day. Um, <laughs> it's not personal, right. And, and you know, there, there were multiple times when someone was, you know, sort of playing hardball and... Um, it felt it felt bad to me because I thought, well, I you know I I thought we had this rapport and I this person was treating me with respect and we were entering into this negotiation or this conversation and now I'm really confused as right. where is this aggressiveness coming from and I think women are often put um, in a position where you're expected to be adjust nice and be nice. or adjust your your instincts in the way that you approach people and you um, handle people. And mm -hmm. I completely reject that whole concept now. And I think, no, you know, it is personal for me. Mm -hmm. My business is, is my livelihood. You know, I, your work should be a reflection of who you are as a person, just because, you know, you can't walk into a boardroom and scream and yell or, you know, shout at your staff and then turn around and think that you're a kind and compassionate person. There's the, and I think a lot of, a lot of people do that in business. And I think women are, um, I mean, not to bring up Harvey Weinstein, but you know, Harvey Weinstein thought he was a real proponent of women, yeah. even though he was a serial harasser and rapist. I mean, he still believes that he's a proponent of women. He thinks he did more for women in the movies and he did do a lot for women in the movies, but he was also, it's, he was a serial harasser and rapist, but there are multiple shades to people, right? Absolutely. And I think as women, we have to learn how to deal with those shades and be confident within and, and, ourselves. And to be confident that you don't need this, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde persona. You, right. You, exactly. Be kind and respectful to people, whether it's business or personal. I mean, there, to me, there is no, um, there's no difference there. And I think in, in the early days, I felt a lot of pressure to toughen up and, you yeah. know, 
look at it in a yeah put on a, a persona yeah. to make right. you so someone would take you more seriously and not be true to yourself and and I think the reality is it comes with time and experience just like everything else in life mm -hmm. and, you know sometimes Absolutely. you have to do it the hard way mm -hmm. <laughs> well on that note time is up so Aww. I know this was fun. I feel like we could have talked a lot longer and gotten really deeper. Um, this is Nikki Nellis. I'm live on Industry Night. I'm sitting here with Amanda McClemens of Salt and Sundry fame and Anyang of NBC4 Washington. It's so nice to have you both in studio. This was um, an absolutely delicious conversation. Thanks for joining us again. We'll see you next week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.